Welcome to the GTB podcast for March 2023, volume 61, number three. My name is David Fazakli and I'm DTB's deputy editor. Hello, I'm James Cave, editor-in-chief. Uh, once again, thank you for joining us for our podcast. And this time we'll be discussing the content of March's DTB. Um, we're recording this podcast on Valentine's Day, so it's a good time to talk about matters of the heart. So before we get to the articles, uh, I thought, James, I'd ask you about the recent proposal from NICE to reduce the threshold for offering statins to people who have not got cardiovascular disease so that anyone with a 10-year risk of less than 10% could be considered for a statin. Now, I appreciate this is slightly old news. I think the announcement came the day after we recorded our last podcast, but it also means we've had a bit of time to reflect on what it means. So, James, what did you think when you heard this and what it might mean for you in general practice? Well, of course, the, the first thing I heard was, I think it was a newspaper cutting headline, NHS plans statins free for all to curb deaths. Um, and yes, this is the new, but it's draft, isn't it? Draft guidance, draft, uh, yes. cardiovascular disease, risk assessment and reduction, including lipid modification. And I have to say, it got me cross about this because I think there's several issues which didn't hit the headlines and are buried within the NICE guidance. And I always say to people, always read NICE guidance from cover to cover because there's more stuff in there that they don't tell you about than stuff that they do. And what is fascinating is that in the guidance, it points out that only 56% of people with a Q risk score over 20% currently take a statin. So we're only treating about half of the people with a high risk with a statin. Now, if we could target those people better, we would have a significantly better impact on premature deaths from heart disease than chasing people with significant low risk. So, um, yeah, but it is, you're right. What this is all about is draft guidance where they're saying that we should consider. Now, consider is the weakest of all the nice terms. It's not should, it's a consider. Um, but they are saying that it, this might mean that up to 15 million more people in the UK will be eligible, legible, or would, would be considered for a statin. And I've done a few calculations, 2p a day for the statin, £20 for a consultation, 12 over 10 years, £20 for the 12 blood tests over the 12 years. I've worked it out that this is going to cost £7.5 billion if all 15 people sign up. It'll certainly cost half a million to treat a 1,000 people. And according to NICE, that may prevent 20 cases of ischemic heart disease or a stroke, which works out at about £27,000 a stroke or heart attack, which... Um, it's quite close to the quality, isn't it? So the difficulty I have with this is NICE suggests that, of course, it'll be cost neutral for the NHS, but of course, it won't be cost neutral for primary care. They'll pay for all this and secondary care will see the savings. So much to talk about. It's like a gone forever. If you just read the guidance on how we should approach this with patients about provide information on risk assessments, explore their beliefs, assess readiness to make changes, assess their confidence to make changes, inform them of potential future management options, develop a shared management plan. This is a big ask already. And I think we don't need it. I think we should have been focusing more on the high-risk patients. I agree. I was just reflecting on the proposed wording, which is, as you say, that starts with the word consider. 
and let's consider atorvastatin 20 milligrams primary prevention of CBD for people with a 10-year Q-risk 3 score less than 10% where there is patient preference for taking a statin. And I think, as you rightly say, it's unpacking what patient preference for taking a statin actually means and how you have that balanced discussion in seven and a half, ten minutes, whatever you have. Whereas for somebody who's got existing CVD or is at much higher risk, that discussion presumably is much easier to have. And the numbers are much better. You know, you the moment, if you've got someone who's got a 5% risk over the next 10 years, the general situation is if you ask them without going anywhere, say, look, what do you think your risk of having a heart attack or a stroke is in the next 10 years to a 65-year-old? They'll say, oh, I don't know, perhaps, you know, 20% risk. And you say, well, no, actually, it's, you know, it's 10% or, you know, that means there's a 90% chance you won't actually have a heart attack or stroke. And most people are really pleased with that. <laughs> and they say, well, why are you going to give me a statin? I, you know, it's, this is far lower risk than I thought I was actually facing. The other interesting thing about the guidance, which I really would like to question, they do go on to say, of course, we should only do this if lifestyle changes on their own are not sufficient. But what do they mean by sufficient? What does that mean? Because these are people who've got low risk. So do we mean, what What point? I, I just don't understand what that means. But not sufficient. Is it when they, they, their risk is zero? Anyway, enough. Yes, it's, it's a difficult one. I, I think it's, a, as always, I, I understand what they're doing. You know, we're talking about 21,000 excess heart deaths in the past nine months in England. You know, that's a significant issue. Whether that's all down to the fact that we've missed these patients or whether it's down to the fact that they were very sedentary during lockdown or whatever it might be, we don't know. But we are seeing an excess incidence of heart deaths. And I get the need. Statins are largely safe. They're cheap. I get it. But it's the pragmatic, actual you know, getting this right, that's the important bit. And I do worry about the situation when you are basically telling the majority of the adult population to do something. You know, one asks, well, perhaps the simplest way around this would be to make this a P medicine. And then, you know, patients who would like to take it can go to their pharmacy and and buy it um, with advice from their pharmacist. That to me, actually, if you look at the sort of situation we're in would be a better option and that would give us more time to focus on those at high risk and as you say it's, it's a lot of people we've got to treat to prevent relatively small numbers of of events again you, you know doing the calculation it's that you know thousand people for 10 years to prevent 20 events now it's 20 events that hospital then don't have to treat but that is 980 people who are getting no benefit Exactly. And of course, remember that the risk calculators, they're quite good, but they're not perfect. So if you've got a risk calculator, you know, I think we all remember that very interesting diagram uh, in the BMJ many years ago, which showed, you know, where the Q risk would put the risk and then where the actual people are that would actually have heart disease. And the two don't match completely. So even if you manage to hit all the people with a high Q risk, you're not going to hit all the people with a high risk because it, it misses people. So it, it's far more complicated. And I think my worry is that NICE seems to be suggesting um, that this is a sort of a foolproof plan. And I, and I think it's much more nuanced than that, much more nuanced. You know, we know that a lot of people stop taking statins after five years as well. There's so much more to this. And I think it's at the very heart of therapeutics. And I think a lot of people, unfortunately, particularly in secondary care, 
don't understand the therapeutic complexity of long-term medication in patients that are well. Um, pharmacists know it, GPs know it, you know, nurses and, and other prescribers in primary care know it, but it's a really nuanced, complex thing. And I think that when it comes to this sort of, you know, this sort of, because there's so many issues here, you know, does someone who you give a statin to stop bothering to go to the gym? Do they think, well, I've done the bit I need for my heart. I don't need to go to the gym. I don't need to keep exercising. You know, where do we know what happens to people if you start taking medication? We've got studies that looked at patients who were started on antihypertensives, which shows that actually they considered themselves more ill. They had more sick leave. You know, there are implications here which go far beyond just the nuts and bolts of a Q-risk number and, you know, numbers needed to treat. It, it is very complex. And it is interesting, isn't it, that at a time of, of great pressure in health service generally, but particularly in primary care appointments, um, the amount of pressure on clinicians to see people, why aren't we focusing, as you say, on the 56% who aren't taking a statin and have got a much higher risk than increasing the workload and time required to see 15 million more people who are, as you say, much lower risk and will get much less benefit out of a statin. So you, you sometimes wonder whether what NICE produces is actually balanced against the capacity of the NHS to deliver. But again, that might be a subject for another discussion. I think so. <laughs> well, okay, we've got off to a, a controversial start with that one. Uh, let's calm things down and move on to the content of, of the uh, March issue. Let's start with Mike Wilcox's editorial on uh, penicillin allergy labels, a uh, topic we've covered before. What's Mike saying? What's new in this one? Well, I think what's really interesting is, you know, this is a topic where I think we have covered in the past, and it's a really important one. I mean, I was, I was absolutely staggered by the numbers involved in this. So the proportion of incorrect penicillin allergy labels is, is possibly as high as 95%. Um, and, you know, I think most people working in, in primary care know that an awful lot of people think they're allergic to penicillin when they're not. And a lot of records are saying they're allergic when they're not. And what, what Mike and Daniel here say do here is they go through some of the national and international guidelines that support non-allergists delabeling penicillin allergy and I think that's really important I think one of the main messages for me from this is that actually you know this doesn't require a referral to a significant allergy clinic actually a good history a good look at sort of the records actually very often will give you the answer and um, as many as 14 to 41 percent depending on which study you look at can be delabeled quite safely without the need to do any testing. And certainly that's my own experience. You know, the number of times I've I've seen someone and I've asked them before I'm going to prescribe antibiotics to them, are you allergic? And they'll go, yes, I'm allergic to penicillin. And then you'll look through their past medication and you'll see they've been given flucloxacillin and amoxicillin three times in the last whatever. And you say, well, have you had any recent reactions? Oh, no, no. It was when I was a kid. And you say, well, you know, actually... Thank goodness, well, not thank goodness, but, you know, some doctor's not bothered to ask you and has given you penicillin and you've been fine. We can we can remove this. You are definitely not allergic. So I think there is something about, as anyone who's prescribing, when they're told, oh, yes, I'm allergic to penicillin, I think it's it's really important, and sort of the point that Mike makes, is to really challenge that 
in a constructive way and see if you can tease out what's really going on. Because we know that the problem with penicillin allergy is that these patients are given second line drugs, which are often broader spectrum, and that may impact microbial resistance, but also they get drugs that aren't necessarily as effective at treating their infection and actually morbidity and mortality is disproportionately raised as well. I think what's interesting, having followed this story for well, what seems like several years, we've gone from a point where we know it's an issue, but we didn't quite know what to do about it, to raising its profile and making it more of an issue, to a point now where guidelines are coming out saying, actually, you can do something about this. Okay, you can't do uh, allergy testing in, in primary care, but in secondary care, you can do it without having to be uh, an allergy specialist. And there are you know, protocols and pathways that would allow that to happen. So gradually, it seems to be moving to a point where delabeling is much more commonplace or practical than, than we had in the past. Exactly. And I think as Mike points out, um, even those that you've done an assessment and actually you decide you're going to test them, only one to two percent actually have a report of harm and and those were non-serious you know they were sort of probably rashes or just a reaction very mild reaction so you know we're not talking about loads of anaphylaxis going on here um, and I think so many people who've been labeled with penicillin allergy were given penicillin for a viral infection that viral infection caused a rash a few days later and they've assumed that there's an association between the penicillin and the and the rash um, and and of course the way around this as well the way to reduce this problem is to make sure that we don't prescribe penicillin for viral infections um, because that reduces then the load we're putting onto patients and the subsequent rashes that come and and the do I don't I now label this patient as allergic so encouraging, um, I guess, encouraging developments, really, that, that this is moving forward and making progress. But as Mike says or points out in the, in the editorial, um, there is still quite a way to go. Um, and there is a lot about communication. So once you've decided to take the label off, it's about making sure that's both clearly explained to the individual who's lived with a label of I'm allergic to penicillin for years and what that means for them, but also so that it's communicated to other healthcare providers. Definitely. And I think obviously with, with the spine and, and, and such like, you definitely have to make sure that you've recorded this effectively. And I think, you know, there has to be a patient buy-in to this. So you definitely got to bring the patient along with you. There's no point in having a fight over it because uh, that's just not, not helpful all around. I just do wonder whether, you know, our, we do these systematic medication reviews now and I would just wonder whether we should be including that concept of of just testing out the story behind the allergy in those situations to see if you can actually you know make an assessment about how severe or how likely it really is that this patient does have a penicillin allergy. Okay thank you very much. Uh, let's go to one of our select articles. Um, those of you who might remember that last December there was a lot of media noise about the results of a trial of a new drug for Alzheimer's disease. Uh, as with many of these announcements, perhaps the hype was was more than the, the evidence uh, suggests. But anyway, we thought we'd look at the trial. It's it's a trial of lecanemab for early Alzheimer's disease. The, the, the um, results have now been published. What was the trial, James? What did it find? Yeah, so this was in Nedgham just towards the end of 
actually, I think it was published online towards the end of last year, but actually it's only just appeared in Nedgem paper this year. Um, this is a study about 17, 1800 people with, now this is important, early Alzheimer's disease. So this is not about dementia as a, as a whole disease element. This is not including vascular dementia. It's just early Alzheimer's disease. And I think these were patients also had to be amyloid positive, if you like, that had to have special scans to demonstrate that. And in effect, they were given um, lecanemab every two weeks by intravenous injection for 18 months. And uh, it was a double blind placebo controlled trial. And they did various dementia scores um, and also assessed things like amyloid burden at the end of that time. And what the study showed was that there was a statistical significantly different um, score change between the lecanemab group and the placebo group for those sort of cognitive functioning tests. Um, but the question, the, the big question has been whether those are clinically significant or not. Um, I think what's interesting about this drug is once again, it, they didn't demonstrate a reversal. They just demonstrated a, if you like, a, a velocity decline in the, the reductions in their cognitive function. Um, and there were some also concerns regarding um, significant events. There's a particular issue with edema um, that can affect people. And oddly enough, atrial fibrillation was also was, was raised in the lecanemab group. So as you say, it was big fanfare, people talking about it being momentous. Um, Alzheimer's research was complaining that, you know, we didn't have the ability to give this drug. Um, you know, we didn't have the sort of PET scans and MRI scans that would be required to, to, to provide the delivery of it. But at this stage, it's not actually licensed in the UK. Um, and I think in general, this will take a little while before it is licensed because there are significant question marks over it. And I suppose it's a bit like the other story about aducanumab earlier last last year, but it does come back to what what is the clinical significance of, of the findings. Um, and even I think even the authors couldn't quite define what they meant. And I had a quick look round and people seem to be contrasting it with the results you get with the existing drugs like Aricept or Donepezil and the sort of change you see with those. And there, there they were talking about a reduction of 0.6 points after 18 months. And here we're talking about a change of 0.4 points at 18 months as well. So very small changes um, and possibly not even, not even clinically significant because some people seem to be suggesting that you need a change of one to 1.6 points to be meaningful. So who knows what it actually means? It, uh, totally. And it, you know, it feels to me, um, it, this, this feels to me so like COPD. And, you know, there's we've been trying to find a drug that's going to reverse COPD. And along came the long-acting muscarinic antagonists like teotropium. Um, and, and, you know, they didn't stop the decline in lung function they simply reduced its velocity just like this drug um, and for most people well for many many people likewise lamas don't have a significant clinical impact on their disease and obviously this is also the other thing interesting about lecanemab of course is it's raised the whole amyloid um, pathology again because I think there was people were beginning to lose faith in the idea that amyloid is is the issue is the sort of the thing that causes Alzheimer's disease. And I think the jury is still out on this. Um, 
but it has once again raised the whole question about the amyloid pathology and its in, its involvement in Alzheimer's disease. And as you say, it isn't licensed for use in the UK yet. I noticed that they have applied to the EMA, European Medicines Agency, for a license. I have no idea if it's gone to the MHRA. I haven't, can't find anything on their website, um, which is actually quite hard to use, but I haven't found anything on their website to say whether they've had an a- application. Um, the FDA did approve it under its accelerated approval pathway, um, but at the moment not not for use in, in, in this country. And we just have to wait and see what happens when it does go to the MHRA. But as you say, the, the major problem will be how do you actually deliver this this in clinical practice? Yeah, it's a very complex drug. It'll be interesting to see how things go in the USA because um, they probably have got the wherewithal to do the various investigations and tests that are required. So perhaps post-marketing surveillance for them will give us an answer to how clinically effective and useful this will be. But it is one of these slightly annoying situations where the, the press release, and I imagine it was a press release from um, the early results from the clinical trials that, that caused everyone's attention. And then the reality of the study doesn't quite match with the hype. But of course, everyone's forgotten that, that, you know, the hype still remains in people's minds, but people don't go and look at the study. So, you know, we had it all through COVID, didn't we, about breakthrough clinical trials. But actually, when you look at the results, they're not that good. Let's go to our final article. This is a review article this month, and we're looking at a new combined oral contraceptive. Do you want to just quickly talk us through it? This is, um, as you say, combined oral contraceptive with this new estrogen called Estatrol, which is E4 um, as opposed to E3, which is Estrile, E2, Estradiol, and E1, which is Estrone. The, the ones and twos to fours all uh, relate to the hydroxyl, num- the number of hydroxyl groups that the compound has. Um, Estatrol isn't synthetic. It's, it is produced by um, uh, fetal livers during pregnancy. So um it is a it is it is a naturally occurring estrogen and the manufacturers do sort of um in their blurb try and make out that this has got huge advantages over other current estrogens that are used and even has a, an environmental uh benefit doesn't impact on the environment so what's interesting about this combined oral contraceptive is that it's it comes with drosperinone uh, which is the progesterone, which you also see in Yasmin and Lucette and other uh, contraception, uh, contraceptive pills. But it it's done with only a four-day window of inactivity, if you see what I mean. So you take the active drug for 24 days, not 21 like a lot of oral contraceptives, combined oral contraceptives, and then you have just four days of placebo pills uh, before you then restart your next pack. And of course, that adds an element of, uh, of added complexity. It certainly, you know, means that your missed pill policy is different from standard combined oral contraceptives. And it also means that if you want to have, um, no periods and take it continuously, it requires a little bit more, um, of a different approach than you would with a standard combined oral contraceptive. Um, but that's it. It's obviously, as one might imagine, it's expensive. It's almost 10 times more expensive than a standard um, three-month course of combined oral contraceptive, about 25, 26 pounds for three months. Um, but yeah, the pharmaceutical company suggests it's a major breakthrough. 
there are a couple of studies that have been done in in Europe and in the USA and Canada looking at its effectiveness, and it seems to be effective at preventing pregnancies, which is good. But as I say, whether it really is going to be any different from any other pill, that remains to be seen. I mean, what I found interesting was that those two studies, um, <laughs> regulatory authorities in Europe and America took completely opposite positions on them. So the study that was done in Europe and Russia, um, the way they measured the success of the pill in preventing pregnancies, I mean, it's slightly complex, isn't it? Because the European Medicines Agency gives guidance on what they think should be the margin of error or margin of efficacy for um, a study of a drug in to prevent pregnancy. And one of the studies met their threshold, but the study from America didn't. So they kind of discounted that and said, oh, well, we don't, we won't, that's for interest only, but the data comes from Europe, Russia. Whereas in, in America, because of the difference between the two studies, they only took their American data and applied that as their decision-making uh, criteria. So very different views. Um, and, and there were, well, not significant, but there were enough differences between the effectiveness of the, of the, the two studies uh, in terms of number of pregnancies prevented that made you think, hmm, this is interesting. Why is it so different? Um, so I don't know what you made of that. Yeah, you're right. But I think there was almost a factor of 10 difference in the Pearl Index between USA, Canada suggested that there were 2.65 pregnancies per 100 women years. Um, and the same sort of uh, approach from Europe was around 0.29 pregnancies per 100 women years. So, it, it, yeah, interesting. Um, and of course, we're talking about a total of around 4,000 women over um, 13 months. So that's that's the two combined studies. Each study was around, uh, well, I think the European study was about 1,500 people and the USA Canada study started off with about 3,000 screens, but actually got down to 1,000 that actually completed the 13 cycles. So yes, we're talking about, say, two and a half, three thousand 3,000 women who actually have taken this as part of a trial. So it's not huge numbers. And um, there was one deep vein thrombosis in the European trial. There was one ectopic in the USA Canada study. Um, so we're just left with a, a new estrogen, new approach, um, slight, con I, I think, added complexity with this 24 days active pills for inactive placebo pills. I, I just think, why, why make it complicated? Um, and no real long-term data yet on this new estetrol, which interesting enough, I can see that they're also considering uh, marketing drugs for HRT with it. So I'm sure um, we'll hear more about estetrol in the in the months and years to come. And just as an aside on, on the kind of venous thromboembolism risk, I mean, we, that was in the news many years ago. And, and then we had a uh, sort of comparison of the, the different progestogens and their impact or suggested it impact on the incidence of VTE. Um, now, just spironone was at the higher end. Uh, so it's interesting that they've coupled it with with that. Is that a, an issue for you? Yeah, it was interesting, wasn't it? Because you're right. It, you know, levonorgestrel has possibly a, a lower risk profile when it comes to venothromboembolism. Um, so why pick just pyrinone? 
I don't know. I mean, you need to ask the, the clever chemists at the pharmaceutical company, but you're right. It, it seems that um, they have picked um, just perinone, which does seem to be at the higher level of risk compared to, to other progesterones. I mean, the absolute levels of risk are, are low, but, but you know, the, mm. they did the EMA and uh, I think also um, in the UK Faculty of Sexual and Reproductive Healthcare, you know, they do re- reproduce that table uh, and point out that there is you know, there is a differential between them. Um, so yes, interesting. We don't know. We don't know why. Um, and maybe, uh, maybe we never will. But um, okay. So uh, bottom line is kind of not quite sure. Is that the, is that the answer? Well, we yeah we don't recommend it. Uh, I think that was our that was our bottom line in the article. Basically, it's got no no reason to be using this at this stage. I think is a simple approach to this. And the kind of company's um, press release when it when it. Earlier in its its um, when they were launching it, making out that this is a what was their wording that it uh, promises to be a major breakthrough in a space where there hasn't been any innovation in decades, possibly not borne out by the facts that we've looked at so far. No, I mean that as you say in, on their website for Essatrol, they talk about it reduces you know, it's got a better profile metabolically, this impact on the liver, better glucose metabolism less impact on breast tissues, all kinds of um, in vitro possible advantages. But as always, it's down to what happens in real life that will be important. Okay, thank you very much. Um, You can find these and all our articles on our website at dtb.bmj.com. And all our previous podcasts are also available from our website. Just click the podcast button at the top of the homepage. And as ever, we are pleased to receive any comments on our content, um, print issue, online articles, podcasts. Let us know what you think. Email us at dtb at bmj.com. So many thanks for listening. And we hope you'll be able to join us in a month's time for the April 2023 podcast.